If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today, we are going to discuss building a high-performance finance office with Kelsey Vatsis. But before we do, I want to share some information about our most recent offering for small and medium-sized nonprofits. Over the past year, I've had, gosh, just a number of organizations that have said to me they would benefit from the participatory strategic planning process that I use, but they just cannot afford the cost of having it professionally facilitated. And so I've kind of been racking my brain about some way that these organizations could use this type of a process at a much lower cost. And so to help nonprofits like that, Successful Nonprofits is going to be launching a strategic planning facilitator cohort group. It's going to start in April, and that group will enable your organization to develop and implement a strategic plan with the participation and guidance of a dedicated leadership volunteer. And let me say that again, it's got to be a leadership volunteer. It cannot be a staff member that participates because a staff member cannot facilitate your strategic planning process. So your leadership volunteer will participate in bi-weekly online cohort sessions to learn and apply the proprietary, proven participatory strategic planning process that we have developed at Successful Nonprofits. Now, the key words here are learn and apply. This is not a passive instructional format. Participants will implement each lesson as the course unfolds. Now, Enrolling in this workshop and, of course, doing the work of the workshop is an incredible opportunity to complete a strategic planning process for a fraction of the cost of hiring a consultant. Since this is the first time we're doing it, early registrants will receive discounted tuition at $2,500 and prices are going to increase after February 15th and then again in March. So you can check out more about the cohort group at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Though, let me also share with you that you can't actually sign up at the website. 
participating in the cohort group requires that you and I have a conversation about the process because we only want to admit organizations that we believe can succeed in the cohort group. Now let's move on with our conversation for today. Every now and again, I will read a book, an article, or a blog, and I will find myself figuratively pumping my fists in the air and shouting, sometimes literally and audibly to the surprise of the people that I'm on a plane or subway with, yes! Now, this happened recently when I read a blog post entitled, Signs of Finance Department Dysfunction and What to Do About It. I have witnessed scenarios described in this article more times than I care to tell you. Reading it provoked a yes, yes, and for a third time, yes response with me. So I knew that I had to reach out to the author to share war stories. And so I'm delighted that the blog's author, Kelsey Vatsis, is joining me on the Successful Nonprofits podcast today. Kelsey is a principal with Clifton Larson Allen, an industry services consulting firm, and Kelsey's professional passion has become helping finance departments move from chaotic inefficiency to streamlined functioning. She has developed a complete finance department assessment to identify trouble, correct it, and chart a roadmap to continued success. Now, let me just say, This is an incredibly important episode for you to listen to, even if you think it does not apply to you or your organization, because every organization has finances and every organization needs to know how to have an efficient and effective finance department. So, hey, Kelsey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Steph. Yeah. One of the things I said in the intro is that I loved your blog post, both because you offer advice on fixing problems, but also because I could absolutely relate with some of the stories you shared. One thing I've got to ask you, you mentioned you had a client who had 1,800 general ledger accounts. Was that for real? That was for real. I actually happened to be at that client again yesterday. Uh, We helped them convert to a new software and bring their chart of accounts down to a much more manageable level. And it's amazing how it's transformed uh, the work that their, their team does and how their whole team understands finances. But yes, it was quite a uh, interesting set of accounts, many of which hadn't been used in 10 or 20 years. Uh, let's unpack that. So how did they get to a point that they had over 1,800 accounts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. You know, I think a lot of it was it, it's an organization that uh, over the years has offered a number of different products, services, and events that they host. And so instead of having a flexible chart of accounts that would allow them to uh, use similar accounts year over year and still measure and track things in a meaningful way, they just created a new account every time they did something different. Uh, The other thing was that they really leaned more towards the direction of more information is better, but they never stopped to say, are we actually using this? And are we already tracking it somewhere else? So for example, uh, they sell educational uh, courses as one of their product and service offerings, and they track every single separate educational course, and every time they made improvements, they tracked it as a new course. And uh, then as we stepped back, we realized 
that you know, they were allocating every expense to every one of these educational courses, um, but they were never, ever using that information. Not once in 10 years uh, that they could recall had they ever used that information to make decisions. And so when we redesigned the chart, we thought about, okay, how can you meaningfully use this um, and what level of detail do we really need to track in the accounting system? Let me ask you this question. Is it your sense that management was the one that pushed for creating a new account every time a course was modified? Or is it your sense that the board was doing that? You know, I really think this came from a disconnect between the former executive director and the staff who were doing the accounting. Um, I don't actually think that the board was involved or cared at all. I don't think the board even knew that this existed uh, at this level of detail. But I think the executive director had always pushed for, we need more detail, we need to track detail. And the accounting team had just gotten into this habit of, okay, we'll just keep creating these new accounts. So I think it had more to do with the fact that those two groups weren't communicating, uh, but it didn't creep so much into the governance level in this situation. Another question as we unpack this that I've got is how many staff were necessary to code and maintain all those accounts as incomes coming in and expenses are, are happening? Yeah, great question. So this organization uh, historically had had one finance um, at some point, they had actually moved into an outsourced uh, finance team, which had two or three individuals on a fractional basis. But of those individuals, uh, that book level person was spending such a significant amount of their time just trying to you know, get people to code things to these 1,800 different accounts, trying to use them consistently, et cetera, that once we cleaned everything up, uh, that person was able to do that transactional work so much more efficiently. Mm, nice, nice. So what are some of the other big dysfunctions that you've seen happen in finance departments you've walked into? Great question. So particularly with, with nonprofits with grant funding, one of the things we see uh, really often is that when an organization scales, and particularly if that scale is coming through uh, government funding, that often the processes they created that made sense when they were a $1 or $2 million organization, they just kept and replicated those processes as they scaled. And because we all know that government funding is tricky and fickle, um, and you do have to track in a lot of detail uh, that sometimes you might otherwise not choose to do so, often what we'll see is organizations will take these original processes they designed, and they'll just keep doing them on this bigger scale without ever pausing to step back and say, do we actually need to do it this way? Do we need to track it in this level of detail? Does our grant actually require it? And particularly with the rollout of uniform guidance a few years ago now, while some things got more fickle and strict on grant tracking and reporting, there were actually some things that scaled back or you could take a simpler approach. And we've walked into so many organizations where they just never had the time to step back and think about, could we do this a simpler way? So one example was an organization who had gone from a couple million dollar annual budget to over a $30 million annual budget in just a short number of years. And when we came in to do an assessment, they had three full-time people just doing accounts payable with most of their work being focused on allocating among all of these different federal grants. 
And so it was taking a very long time to process every single AP transaction because of these complicated allocations they were doing. When we stopped and looked at what does your grant actually require, are there some different options, and we figured out pretty quickly that they could set up a schedule at the beginning of the year based on where they think that uh, the allocation is going to land, set it up in their system, just enter AP like normal AP invoice, uh, apply that allocation, and then you know once or twice a year look at how the allocation is actually working, do a, a little true up, um, and be good to go. And so with that, they were able to shift the resources of almost two full-time people to doing more meaningful finance and accounting work than processing checks. That's incredible. And one of the other grant dysfunctions that I've certainly seen happen, especially with government grants, and I'd be interested to see uh, if you have seen this, is with some of the smaller and medium-sized nonprofits. And most of our listeners are smaller and medium-sized nonprofits, where they'll get their first government grant, whether it's a federal pass-through that comes to their municipality, their city, or their county, or whether it's an actual state or federal grant. And they'll keep essentially, you know, accounting for their income and expenses they did before they had government revenue. And then one day the program officer walks in and says, oh my gosh, you are not accounting for your funds the way this government grant requires that you do. And suddenly they they find themselves behind the curve. Yes, yes, we see that often. I was actually over at a client yesterday, which is about a $1.2 million organization now. Um, two years ago, they were half a million dollars, and they received their first federal funding uh, a year ago. And that was my first question to her was, you know, the programming sounds amazing. You've been able to scale and be more sustainable. How's that grants management going for you? And she said, you know, it was a bit of a surprise for us. But she actually pointed back to the uh, the federal department they were receiving funding from, and she said, they have been so helpful and supportive of us. Part of that was because when we got this grant, we reached out to them and said, this is our first federal grant. You know, we want to make sure we do these things right. We know it's tricky, but we don't have any experience in it. How can we lean on you for support? And so it was really great to hear from her what great support they were getting from the Department of Justice uh, to help them with that. But I think it all goes back to the fact that they were at least proactive enough to say, we know this is going to be tricky and we need help up front. So I think that's where a lot of organizations uh, miss, miss the boat, so to speak. And really, how smart and strategic of them to go to the funder and, you know, not pretend like they know it all and say, oh, we're ready, you know, we got everything under control, but instead go to the funder and say, hey, you know, this is our first time on this ride and we need to know what the rules are, you know, and we need to know how we're supposed to handle it. Exactly, exactly. The other thing I'm starting to see more and more of of our firm's clients do is before they apply for federal funding, reaching out to their advisor, whether that's our firm or someone else, and saying, hey, before we apply for this, could you come in and help us understand how our processes are going to need to change um, and what sorts of things we should be thinking about, particularly what what new positions might we need to fund? What additional capacity might we need to plan for to be able to manage these federal funds if we get them? So it helps them as they're applying for the funds, even though we all know that there's limited funding you can use towards, um, towards administrative capacity, but they can at least be planning for uh, what they need to do before they even apply for those funds. And I think that's a, a really exciting trend that we're seeing. 
You know, and I will say one of the nice things, especially about federal grants is, you know, depending on the department, they'll typically say, okay, you can have X percent. Sometimes it's seven, sometimes it's nine, sometimes it's 10, um, sometimes it's some other number, but X percent can go to admin. And you can pretty much within reason, as long as you justify it, you know, spend that money on whatever admin you need. Right, right. And that's, you know, a lot of times we'll see that 10 percent minimus rate. Um, but the other thing that we're suggesting organizations, once they're consistently receiving federal funding, particularly multiple um, grants uh, from the federal government, is that they consider doing uh, a negotiated indirect cost rate because often we're seeing organizations get uh, rates that are more in the 12 to 15, sometimes higher percent range, which we actually think is more reflective of what it really costs to run and manage a federal grant program. Uh, so once you're at that scale, we would suggest talk to someone about if it makes sense. It is an investment and it takes a lot of time to get that negotiated rate, but it is worth it for those extra percentages that you can use towards uh, the important administrative uh, functions. That might be a real game changer for some of our listeners. So how does an organization go about getting a negotiated indirect cost rate? Good question. So there's a whole process and I'm not going to pretend to be the expert on it, uh, we have folks at our firm who just focus on that because it is uh, a pretty complex process. But there is a, a series of steps that they go through, a lot of which is, is historical financial reporting and analysis to be able to justify uh, what it takes for them as an organization to manage and run these programs. Now, one of the changes that happened um, under uniform guidance was it used to be that um, say you got funding from multiple different departments within the federal government, you could have separate negotiated indirect cost rates with each one, uh, which becomes really confusing um, for program folks and really complicated for tracking for the accounting team. Uh, now what it has switched to is that you have one negotiated indirect cost rate uh, that would apply across the board. There's a few exceptions, but for the most part would apply to all of your federal grants. So that has um, streamlined process. That, that is awesome. And like I said, I think that would be a real game changer for some of our listeners. Up to this point, Kelsey, we've really kind of focused on the finance office itself. But what are some of the dysfunctions that happen um, with the interactions between governance, you know, so the finance committee, the treasurer, the board, and the finance office? Yeah, great question. And it's one of the reasons when we do these finance department assessments, one of the most critical things in that process is not just talking to the people in finance, but talking to the real users of the financial information. Um, so that being finance committee, if there's an audit committee, an investment committee, maybe uh, the whole board, and then also the department directors uh, who use or should be using financial information to make daily decisions. One of the things, uh, we were recently at a client who we had done a finance department assessment for. We were kind of in the end stages of wrapping it up, and we were at their finance committee meeting. And one of their finance committee members happens to be uh, the investment officer at another one of our clients. And so she has this great perspective from both the client side um, doing the finances as well as from the governance side. And as we were talking about financial reporting, what kind of reports does does the board or the finance committee receive? Is that information useful, et cetera? And this was an organization where their packet of information that they provided to the finance committee was 30 to 40 pages long every quarter. And it took staff a lot of time to pull this together. And she said, you know, as I step back and think about it here, I bet every committee meeting 
one of us makes a comment about a change that would be helpful to see to our packet. And you know what? Our wonderful staff run back, and they spend all this time, and they make that change. And then those changes and additions never go away. So we just keep adding and adding and adding to what we're asking the, the staff to prepare every time. And that's not really fair to anyone. And how, how much do we actually use that information that we've asked for or we've mentioned in passing? And you could just see the finance team, you know, they all happened to be in, sitting in this meeting and their shoulders just relaxed and they felt like, oh, someone recognizes this because, yes, that's a lot of work. Um, and so one of the suggestions, and this was a really simple kind of logical thing, but I think for the committee to all hear this and agree, was once a year at a finance committee meeting, we're going to look at the packet of information provided, we're going to give feedback, we're going to agree to something, and then we're not going to make any changes to that for the next year. And the staff was so happy to just know that this was going to be simplified, they were going to scale this back, and they weren't going to have to continue to evolve uh, this packet every single meeting. Kelsey, that is awesome. That is absolutely awesome. Now, if a finance committee, so let's talk about some red flags that finance committees should be looking for to help identify dysfunction in the finance office. And so one that I immediately think of is if a certain number of months has passed um, after the close of a fiscal year and the finance committee has not seen a draft audit or not seen a draft 990, there that's probably a red flag because it means the finance office is having a difficult time closing out the audit. But like how many months do you think that is? Is it six months? Is it nine months? Like what do you think of as, okay, that's when the flare goes up of we have an issue? Yeah, good question. We were having this conversation a, a week ago with a client who's redoing their finance policies and procedures. And one of the questions was, do we put a timeline on when the audit and 990 need to be complete? And the one pushback that, that I had, well, I definitely agree that the faster you can get books closed and the audit done, um, it keeps it more relevant. It makes it more useful and everyone can kind of move on into the next year. But the one thing, especially with our nonprofit clients who have a calendar year end that, that I kind of warned against was a lot of those organizations are using audit firms who most of their work is for-profit audit. And busy season is going to be, you know, February, March, April, May for those, those firms. And often you end up paying a significant uh, amount more if you require that your audit is done in that timeline. And so for clients who have the flexibility um, and who governance feels comfortable with saying, let's, let's aim to get the audit done within six months and have the 990 done within seven, for example, that might allow them to have that audit done um, at a timeline that, that doesn't have that premium cost to it. Um, that said... You know, I definitely think that, that six months is a good goal. Any longer than that, like I said, it's getting pretty stale. But I do think it's important um, for the finance committee to recognize the, those cost implications, especially um, if they're on a calendar year. I'll share with you that it's been my experience, uh, both as an executive director and also as a consultant, if an audit can't be, a draft audit can't be produced six months after the close of a fiscal year, even even a December 31 close, that there are some issues in the finance office. Maybe the finance office can't produce the documentation the auditor is requiring. Maybe the finance office cannot respond to specific questions 
that the auditor has. And to me, like that's a that's a real sign of of issues in the finance office that have to be fixed. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a it's a good kind of rule of thumb or benchmark to look at and um, figure out what is it that's going on. And the other thing I would say is there often can be this relationship between the finance office and the auditor. I'm a former auditor myself, and and so I've been on that side of the street, Um, but where the finance team doesn't ever feel like they can push back at all with the auditor. So when the auditors send this request list uh, that has 100 items, uh, they never feel like they can say, do we really need all of these? And I think that, that, and maybe I'm in a position where I have a little different view on it, but I think it's important that the finance team asks those questions sometimes. Um, a, a client that we were recently working with, and they happened to be an audit client of our firm, and we were doing a finance department assessment. Um, and as part of that process, we often will do a survey of staff and ask them to kind of roughly allocate how they spend their time. And this client, between their controller and their senior accountant, who were their two strong, you know, strongest, longest-standing team members, uh, the two of them are each spending 25 to 30% of their time on the audit. And you think about all the resources that are going into just getting that audit done and the other valuable things they could be doing with their time. And when we broke down what is it about the audit that takes so long, one of the things was that document request list and gathering all this information. And so we started talking about, okay, let's dig into that. Let's look at that. And, you know, one example was that this organization was set up with um, multiple different locations, and every location has uh, their own advisory group, their own finance advisory group. Uh, they weren't actually governing. Uh, they didn't have true governing authority, but they, they did have meetings. They kept minutes. And then there were a number of different uh, kind of organizational-wide committees. And so the, the document request list said, you know, send your committee minutes. And so this organization had historically sent committee minutes for every single one of those advisory committees and board committees, whether they were finance-related or not. Um, so we're talking about over the course of a year, this is a few hundred sets of minutes that are being sent. Oh, and, you know, you talk to the audit team, they're not looking at all of those. A lot of them aren't relevant. But no one has ever said, hey, you don't need to send all of those. Um, You know, that took you a long time to gather, and we don't really need them. And so sometimes just being willing to ask that question and say, do you really need this, or how are you going to use this, help me understand, um, I think it can really be fruitful and help that process go go smoother. That's a really good example and and a really good point as well. One of the other one of the other red flags that I kind of feel like maybe finance committees should be looking out for is if there are deficiencies or weaknesses in the audit and they keep seeing the same deficiencies and weaknesses year after year after year, even though management says, okay, here's how we're going to fix them in the coming year. And two years later, it's still a deficiency or still a weakness. Exactly. I think those management letters can be some of the most useful and telling uh, documents and pieces of information. And it surprises me every single time uh, how when we'll ask a client about it, I'll say, oh, yeah, we maybe have that. I'll see if I can dig it up. I can't remember what was in it. And um, clearly not using that as as a tool. And I, I would agree. And a lot of times we will see, you know, for a lot of small and mid-sized nonprofits like those who listen to this podcast, um, you know, probably the number one thing you see is segregation of duties. And, you know, there's often, even, even sometimes the auditors will say, well, you're just, you're a small organization. You only have one person in finance. Uh, there, may, there may not be a way around this. And 
I like to push people to think a little more creatively about who you can involve and how, and um, how you can mitigate some of those um, those segregation of duties issues, because there are ways around it, uh, but it's just a little bit more creative, and it does force people outside of finance to be more involved in that process. I could not agree more when my first executive director uh, job was at a smaller organization. When I started, it was about a quarter million dollars. By the time I left, it was, you know, about a million dollars. But when we were a quarter million dollar organization, uh, you know, we just did not have the staff for segregation of duties. And so our treasurer kind of stepped in and did some of that. You know, obviously the treasurer is a board member, but, you know, but for example, at every finance committee meeting, um, I would bring a copy of the most recent checking account statement and the treasurer would review each page and initial it. And, you know, if there were issues, he would ask the question. He would say, well, can you explain to me, you know, how this check went through without a signature? Uh, and it, it, so I, I agree with you. I think even if you're a small organization, you've got to have a treasurer on your board and they can help with some of those segregation of duties. The other thing I think about that management letter is if you are management, if you're the executive director or the finance officer, you know, in the in the finance office, I think it's really important that you sit down with the finance committee and eventually you kind of share this with the board as well. And you say, okay, the auditor points out 12 things that we need to be working on. We can't get all 12 done this year. So in the coming year, which four are most important and which two might come after that if we've got time and the bandwidth to do it? Yeah, Delph, I think that's a great way to address it. I always really like to see that when there's a management letter that you know management has a chance to review that before it goes to the board or the committee and that I really like it when organizations then put forward their response to the management letter, which does exactly that, lays out here's here's what was stated, here might be some of the reasons why because I do think context is important and then here's what we're going to do about it. But I agree that when we see organizations that say, you know, here's the 14 things that, that were in the management letter and we're going to address all of them in the first quarter, that's just not realistic and that's more stressful for everyone. So working together between the finance committee and management to come up with what's realistic, what do we need to implement this? And sometimes that means we need more capacity. We need outside help. Um, and that usually has budgetary implications. And so getting everyone on the same page with this is a priority and here's the resources we're going to set aside to do it is a really critical piece to getting rid of those comments going forward and having a stronger finance function. Kelsey, I could not agree with you more. And I have to share with you as an executive director, I always made a point of reading the management letter before it went to the finance committee. And I would say at least every other year, so one out of two times, I would have to go back to the auditor and say, and tell the auditor, you indicated this in the management letter, and that's not correct, and here's why. I need you to change that because you know, this is what we're actually doing, and if it was miscommunicated to you or you misunderstood, we need to clear that up now. Yeah, it's a great it's a great example, Dolph. And you know, I do some outsourced CFO work with with teams here from CLA. And uh, recently, one of our our small clients, who before we came in and, and did their outsourced accounting, always got that that segregation of duties management comment. And when we got the draft audit this year, sure enough, same old language was in there in the management letter. And we said we pushed back and said this is part of the reason we're here. We have three different people. We're all fractional. Um, but we have this all designed so that we do have good internal controls and segregation of duties. And their response was, oh, yeah, we had just copied and pasted that from last year. 
So I think it's really important to push back on those things and to make sure we're being mindful of it because otherwise that would have gone to the board and their question would have been, well, why are we paying you guys to do this? We thought you were taking, you know, taking um, responsibility for getting rid of that, that comment. Well, Kelsey, we are quickly running out of time and I cannot, I cannot close up our conversation without asking you the off the map question. All right. I love talking about finance, but this question has absolutely nothing to do with finance, but it may have something to do with dysfunction. And I hope I don't offend you when I say that, but (laughs) I understand that on your wedding day, now not wedding week, but on your wedding day, you did something highly unusual for a bride and groom to do. Can you tell us more? You bet. One of my favorite stories. Uh, so I am originally from Nebraska. I live in Minnesota now. And um, as, as someone who grows up in Nebraska, there's really one sports team to cheer for. We have no professional sports there, and that's the Nebraska Huskers uh, football team. So I'm a diehard fan. And when I met my husband here in Minnesota, uh, he's lived here his whole life. He's a diehard Minnesota Gophers fan. And so when we were when we were dating, we always went to the annual Minnesota versus Nebraska game. It was shortly after Minnesota and Nebraska um, were both part of the Big Ten. Uh, so we played each other every year. And so when when he proposed, he said, I hope I'm not too presumptuous here, but I found a date and the church is available and it happens to be the date of the Minnesota-Nebraska football game and it's here in Minnesota. So if you want to, I thought that could be fun. And so we planned our whole wedding around this football game. And one of the more interesting things from a a type A uh, logistical person like myself was that uh, that year was the first year the Big Ten didn't set game time until the week before. And so we're trying to plan this whole wedding around this game, and we didn't know if this was going to be an 11 a.m. game or a 2.30 game or a 7 p.m. game. Uh, So our wedding invites actually state, if the game time is this, here's the itinerary for the day. If the game time is this, here's the itinerary. Um, But it was it was such a fun day. Our whole wedding party went, went to the game. We actually were able to get special uh, passes for uh, each of our dads and my husband and I to go down on the field um, in our, our whole getup. Um, so we have some awesome pictures of us down on the field. Sadly to say, for me, um, Nebraska lost to Minnesota that game for the first time in 63 years. Oh. So my husband will say it was the best day of his life and the best day of his life. Oh, that is an awesome, awesome story. I have one follow-up question. Since you did not know what time the wedding would start, did you book your wedding venue for the entire day? It's a great question. So we originally had the venue all day, and part of the reason we ended up getting on-field passes was the venue was the hotel next to the stadium, and uh, the hotel decided a few weeks before our wedding that they were going to host a tailgate the morning of the football game in our room. So we could no longer set up the night before or do anything like that, and so they actually, to help compensate us for that, uh, they were able to negotiate and get us these on-field passes. So uh, we we ended up only having the room for a part of the day, which made logistics a little tricky, but um, did allow us to get on the field and get these amazing pictures for uh, memories for years to come. That's incredible. And so I have a feeling that uh, when you are done with finance and accounting, you're going to have a second act as a wedding planner because only a professional wedding planner could have pulled that off. 
Well, I appreciate it. Looking back now at all my spreadsheets and planning, you know, as an accountant by trade, I keep a lot of spreadsheets and uh, there were a lot of backup versions of what we would do if, but it all worked out okay. That's incredible. Well, Kelsey, thank you so much for talking with me today about finance department dysfunction. I know that you have given our listeners some food for thought. And listeners, you can find Kelsey at Clifton Larson Allen, which is at claconnect.com. That's claconnect.com. We will also link to Kelsey's excellent blog post in the show notes, but that URL is far, far too long for me to be able to read out here. Now, Kelsey has also generously offered our listeners a free, that's right, a no-cost initial consultation if they are considering a finance department assessment. Do not, dear listeners, pass up this opportunity to talk to an expert if only to get a sense of where your organization is now. Hey, Kelsey, thanks again. I really enjoyed this conversation today. Thanks so much, Dolph. And I have to say, I scrolled through all of your past podcasts and there were very few about finance. So I'm excited to be one of the first ones to talk about the exciting world of nonprofit finance uh, on your great podcast. You are right. Um, I think the last time we had someone on to talk about finance was early, maybe two years ago, and it was about automatic revocation of 501c3 status. I'm glad to be here to talk about accounting and finance with all of your listeners today. Thanks again. If you have been too busy circulating a check requisition and you missed Kelsey's contact information, may I suggest that you get it at our website, SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And don't forget to take advantage of Kelsey's free consultation. It is an incredible offer, and really, I just cannot say enough, try to take her up on it. It was great fun to talk to Kelsey today about the weirdness that can creep into the everyday functioning of finance departments. As we all know, though, finance departments are not the only areas of an organization prone to weirdness and sometimes some instability. Any part of a nonprofit can go off the rails if strategic planning has not been done well and is not being implemented well. So at the top of the episode, I mentioned our new strategic planning facilitator cohort group. If you think this might be the strategic planning solution your nonprofit is looking for, be certain to check out the website at SuccessfulNonprofits.com today. If you register by February 15th, you will receive a $1,000 discount off the rack rate, and I don't want you to miss out on this opportunity. But please remember that you cannot actually sign up at the website. Participating in the cohort group requires that you and I have a conversation about the process because we only want to admit organizations that we believe can succeed with this cohort group. That is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment.